0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, before I get into this study, I just want to mention that... um... John MacArthur did a recent study, teaching, and it was called Our King Will Not Be Mocked. So if you hear some of the information that I'm using this morning, I gleaned some of the things historically from John's message. So the uh, I don't want to plagiarize, I just want to utilize what he has researched. It was common in the World of the Old Testament, the ancient world of the Old Testament, amongst all the nations to have rulers, kings who ruled over them, nations that had authoritarian dictators, and they were ruled by a one-man governing authority. Israel was distinct from other pagan nations in that they had a king. But the king who was over them was a theocratic sovereign king. It was the Lord Jehovah God. He is the one who worked through his agents, judges, and prophets to guide the people of Israel. And we read in Isaiah 33, verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, The Lord is our King. He will save us. Also, Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. And Isaiah again in 44, 8, Do not tremble, and do not be afraid. Have I not since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. And then lastly, Isaiah 43:15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So God had chosen Israel. He had guided Israel. He had protected Israel. And we reach a place in which they no longer wanted a theocracy. They no longer wanted their God, Jehovah, to lead them. After the Israelites settled in the Promised Land, they were led by prophets and judges for over a 400-year period. Eventually, because of their sinful and idolatrous practices and their unfaithfulness to Jehovah, they wanted to turn their true king, who was their mediator, and used his prophets and judges to guide them for a man, a mere man. They wanted their own king, not Jehovah. In uh, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, I'll just read it, you don't have to turn there, but in verses 1 through 5 we read this. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the second Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They wanted to trade God for a man, just like all the pagan nations. At this point, Israel has become apostate, apostate. They no longer wanted to serve their God. They had idols. they were sinful. In their practices, and all they wanted was peace. The Amorites and the Philistines were their enemies, and they just wanted to be protected. And they knew if they had a king, he would provide an army. And they could go on, carry on their business. They did not have to worry about keeping the law, which was a prerequisite of God providing safety and protection for them. And when they didn't obey... He allowed the enemy to deal with him. So here we see one of the major changes in the tribe of Israel, now wanting to have a monarchy-led nation, no longer wanting to have their God lead them. This is a sad period of time. In Exodus 15, verse 2 it says this This is after God had preserved and saved them and they had this song and they sang this The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation this is my God and I will praise him And again in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Exodus Who is like you among the gods O Lord who is who is like you majestic in holiness awesome in praises, working wonders. And then again we read in Isaiah 44:6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. God is sovereign over all things. When Samuel received the news, the elders came to him, and they said, You're old. Your sons are not walking your ways. We want a king, like all the other nations. He was troubled, and he went to the Lord and told him all that the elders had told him. And God said, Do as they say, give them a king. So then he said, But warn them. What's going to happen is they're going to take your men, and they'll be servants of the king, Women will become servants of the king, will take a tenth of your crops, will take part of your land, and that's what the king's going to do. He is going to be the sovereign over them, and they're going to reap what they've requested. And at some point, Israel will. <clears throat> uh, reading these verses in Exodus, Jehovah had just given Israel victory and allowed them to escape the Pharaoh's army as God miraculously caused the sea to open up and Israel to cross in dry land. And then the sea he brought down upon Pharaoh's mighty army, destroying them and allowing Israel's deliverance and safety. That mighty miracle that God performed them was not that long ago, and yet they've already forgotten that. They're serving idols, and they're requesting a man to govern them. <clears throat> As we resume in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17, we read this. Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God, apostate. That's what they have become at this point, who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. So, as we think of this, Samuel gathered them to Mizpah. Why Mizpah? Well, that was a place in which Samuel or, had gathered Israel once before when they had a great slaughter after their great battle with the Philistines. He brought them there and reminded them of their sin. And there was a time of repentance. And in that, we read that Samuel said, Gather all Israel. This is in 1 Samuel 7, 5 through 8. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So it was a national repentance. That doesn't mean individual turning to the Lord, but it means that they as a nation recognize before God their sin. But back in chapter 10, verse 17, after Samuel had secretly anointed Saul to be king, that was back up in verse 1 of chapter 10, he had already anointed him privately. But now he has to make provision for a public recognition of the man that God had chosen on the part of his people to rule over them. So he called them all. All the people to gather once again at Mizpah. He reminds the Israelites once again that Jehovah had brought Israel up from Egypt and delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing them. Even that, with that reminder of how God had not only brought Israel from Egypt, delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians from the power of all the kingdoms, the Israelites still rejected their God who delivered them from all the calamities. God had protected his people. He delivered them from all their calamities, and yet they continued to reject him. Why is that? Because God demanded of them to obey his law. They didn't want to do that as a prerequisite to having protection from God. They didn't care that this was the holy God, the creator, the one who had chosen Israel as his nation of people. And yet they rejected the very Lord King Jehovah, the God of the universe. And now they want a man. Why? Because they didn't want to have the burden of the law. They didn't want to obey the law. They didn't want to serve this holy God that was their king. Now, because the people had demanded a king, excuse me, like other nations to rule over them, the tribes selected Saul, the son of Kish, as their king. He was probably selected by casting of lots. We don't know exactly how that went. To carry out this formal process of the lots being casted, Saul would uh, be accredited by this act in the sight of the whole nation as the king appointed by the Lord and also Saul himself was to be more fully assured that that he was truly elected by all of Israel and chosen by God. As we go down to verses 20 through 22, we read this. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near the tribe, and, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, And the Matrite family was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself behind the baggage. Well, here's their new king, the brave Saul. They have chosen him. He's been anointed by the judge of Israel, and where is he now? Behind the baggage. Samuel had called all the tribes to gather at Mizpah and the tribe of Benjamin before Jehovah. There in Mizpah, there was an altar for the worship of Jehovah. This is where Samuel called the people of Israel to gather for the formal process of casting lots. Samuel brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its families, and the Matrite. Now, the Matrite family to which Saul, the king, Israel, belonged, this is the only time this word is used in the Bible. So this represented the head of the family of Israel, or uh, Benjamin, excuse me. Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. At this point in verse 21, they looked for Saul, their king, yet he was nowhere to be found. Saul had hidden himself behind the baggage. Remember, we looked at this earlier when a whole tribe of Israel would gather together, they would, if it was going to be a long period that they stayed at a location, they would stack their baggage, which included their tents, their clothing, their food, and especially their weapons, because that formed a a barrier, a temporary barrier, where they could protect themselves in the event of an enemy attack. So they had this, and the matrite here was the head of the family of Kish. There are varied views as to why Saul had hidden himself. Scripture really doesn't tell us or give a specific reason why Saul acted in this manner. We can make some assumptions based on Saul's behavior and his characteristics, which he's displayed so far. So what do we know about Saul? Well, Kish sent him and a servant to locate some three donkeys that were lost. They had run away. That was his mission. They went out in the area of Ephraim. They couldn't find them, so the servants suggested there's a seer nearby. Well, seer was a prophet. That was the name used at that period of time, and that would have been Samuel. So they decided, let's find the donkeys, but we'll ask this seer where they are. So they sought Samuel. In the meantime, the Lord spoke to Samuel, and when he saw Saul, he said, this is the man, God told Samuel, this is the man I have chosen to be king, over leader over Israel. So that's their first meeting. He was trying to get information so he could locate the donkeys, return to his father, have a successful mission. He never did find them. The donkeys returned on their own. So we know that part of his job was taking care of animals. In one instance, we have somewhat uh, a show of humility on the part of Saul. This is in back in chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but in John nine, for Samuel 9, verses 20 and 21, we read, Is it not for you and all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite? the smallest of the tribes of Israel, my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Samuel was implying by stating this that he was going to be king. Samuel knew this, and yet he showed somewhat humility by saying we're the smallest tribe, the least of Israel. But we'll see that... Saul becomes a king and yet a very disappointing king in the end. Some commentators say that he may have been overwhelmed and fearful to become king and ruler over God's people, Israel. Others submit that perhaps this showed Saul at this point was humbled by the thought that Jehovah selected him to become king over Israel. It's interesting, John MacArthur makes this in his commentary on 1 Samuel. He says this, Saul knew that he was going to be selected as king, but his responses was to run away and hide. The Lord saw Saul as a man of greatness, but Saul never learned to see himself in that way. As a result, the vision Saul did not have was that of God's plans and they became less and less accurate over time he did not believe the lord would give him the strength to perform what he had commanded him to do End quote. one of the early reformers on 1 samuel 10:22 makes this observation there are not many nor so cunning devices for the hiding of natural infirmities of the body such as the crookedness of the legs or back, for the lack of a tooth or eye as they are, for the unnatural deformities of the soul. But once their desires are granted, they show themselves. Then the waters, which were previously stopped and dammed up, run over and rage furiously. And this is surely like it when Saul hid himself in the baggage, when he was to be chosen king. In the same way, the wicked, when they look either by election or other means to get this or that, they very soon hide themselves in their filthy stuff and the baggage within them. End quote. That was by Daniel Dyke, one of the early reformers. <clears throat> it's kind of hard to understand what he's trying to say there. What he's saying is the outward appearance of humility isn't always as such. When someone reaches that state where they have so much control over such a great nation that they are then puffed up with pride and they no longer conceal their humility, but the pride goes to their head and all the rubbish and their filthy baggage comes out in their very acts. And that's what happens later on with Saul. <clears throat> in verse twenty two through twenty-four we read, Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself in the baggage by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, <clears throat> he was taller than the people from his head from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. The exact process in which they used in selecting the king is not revealed, although the Urm Thuman. May have been used. That's a term referring to a vestment that the high priest wore. And it shows us that in Exodus 28, verse 30, where it says this You shall put it on, you shall put in the breastplate of the judgment, the Urim Thuman, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel. Over his heart before the Lord continually. So, the nearest I could find out, these were two uh, brilliant stones that were placed on the vestments of the high priest. And the high priest would attend any formal coronation or any big event, and this would show that it had God's approval for the nation of Israel. So, this was a vestment. That means that the high priest came to Mizpah's well. And they were wearing this vestment, which would show God's approval of Saul as king over Israel. Samuel knew that the leaders who desired the kingship would not be satisfied with his testimony alone. God would have to do the choosing. The important fact is that the king was chosen by divine appointment, not human effort or manipulation. So God did choose Saul. Later on we'll read in First Samuel that God was disappointed that he did so. We read in Proverbs chapter eight verse fifteen by me kings reign and rulers decree justice. And then again in Proverbs sixteen verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And then again in Daniel, verse 21 of chapter 2, it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. And then again in Daniel four, verse seventeen, the sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it upon whom he wishes, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Daniel four seventeen. So we have to understand. God is still sovereign. doesn't matter what people do to manipulate things. God is the sovereign over all. So as we look at this and think of Saul, we know that that's not the king that's going to please God. It's going to be David. Saul was aware that he was selected king, but his response was to run away and hide. He didn't have enough confidence in God to give him the strength. In verses 25 and 26, did I skip one here? Okay, yeah, 25. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book. Placed before the Lord, and Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house in Gibeah. The ordinances of the kingdom were governed by the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, which we looked at earlier. Then Samuel reminded the Israelites that the law of Moses, which would govern the king, he had written down and laid up before the Lord. A vital distinction is made in this text. This is really key, which speaks of the rules of the justice, not of the king or the kingship. In other words, Samuel was placing the new institution under the authority of God's word. He did not highlight the authority of the king over the law, but rather the authority of the law Over the king, a king, when he was appointed, must have the law and he must read it daily. And that would be the governing authority. If the king would carefully observe God's statutes and commandments, then Israel would enjoy success and the king's reign would be long. This passage has played a very important role in Old Testament Israel. John Knox, a Puritan reformer, points this out to show the earthly monarchs are not laws unto themselves, but they are laws subject to God's law. Thus, when Mary, Queen of Scots, committed adultery and abetted the murder of her husband, Knox called for her arrest and execution. Even more significant was the influence of Saul's coordination in Samuel Samuel Rutherford's 1644 classics, Less Rex, Rutherford wrote this: "Les Rex, which means "law of kingship, to oppose the idea of Rex Les, the king as law unto himself. Rutherford's book was based upon Deuteronomy 17, probably the very Bible verses that Samuel had set before Saul and referred to Samuel's placing of King Saul under the authority of God. Rutherford wrote this, and this began, quote, Rutherford asserted that the kings of Scotland did not have the right to make laws that were contrary to Scripture and declared that when a king conducted himself lawlessly, his rights over the people were forfeited. Lex rest... The Bible model of separation of powers and social covenant was influential, excuse me, influential among the founding fathers of America and also provided a biblical rationale for colonial American Christians in their rebellion against the lawless English monarch. John Robbins has therefore described 1 Samuel as the oldest textbook on political freedom pointing out that by placing human society under God's law, the Bible furnishes us with the principles we need to defend a free society, quote. <clears throat> Many Christians become confused about obeying God's law, both Old and New Testament. We're not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14, Paul instructed us and gave us that very teaching. Paul says this in referring to the law as meaning of righteousness. His point is that Christians do not gain salvation or merit with God through the law, but by grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's point in that passage was not to promote antinomianism, that is, Uh, antinomianism means the belief that grace freezes from any standard of conduct. He was actually correcting that. Paul makes this clear when he says in verse 15 of chapter 6 of Romans, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that we are now under the law but under God's grace? May it never be. So because... Christians sometimes get confused. We don't obey ceremonial law, but we do keep the moral law. But it's an evidence of our salvation, not the causation of salvation. We are to keep all of God's Word, anything that refers to our obedience. We do so by God's grace. Christians aren't saved by God's law. We're saved by His grace. Listen, we are also to keep His commands, which includes the moral obligations of the Ten Commandments, the importance of which is stressed throughout the New Testament as well. Also, the rules and regulation that God has given us in His Word were not under the requirements of the Old Testament ceremonial law, but the imperatives of the moral law. And we have to remember also, we can't do this in our own strength. It's only by God's grace as we obey him. And we look once again at Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Back in chapter 10, in verse 26, we read this, Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. <clears throat> this is after the convocation, Samuel dismissed the people and an unknown number of valiant men went with Saul. But God had touched their hearts of certain men to follow him, to protect him. They knew that this was Israel's new king and it was approved by God. So they were going to provide protection. So, kind of like the Secret Service, he had this group of valiant warriors that surrounded him. Some various commentators on this text in translating this passage make this observation. These men of valor that God had touched would be Saul's guardians and escorts to support, to protect, their newly elected king, to his home. Not only did God sovereignly appoint Saul to be king over Israel, but he also provided those who would be his supporters and protectors. In the last verse, in verse 27, we read this, But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept Silent. These worthless men, which translates son of Belial, men whose hearts the Lord had not touched, it was a serious risk for the young king to have any kind of a faction, and yet they showed contempt when he was appointed king. Yet Saul remained quiet. He didn't do anything at this time. He held his peace, and this shows some character on his part that Saul was able to bear the disrespect and disdain at this time without seeking any vengeance. So as we close this chapter, this was a main transition in leadership of all Israel. We're going to have many kings following this. The first following Saul, of course, will be David. But what do we gain from this? What can we learn from this great historical teaching from Samuel. We understand, first of all, that God sovereignly chose Saul. He picked him. He had his reasons for doing so. And so he was the one that Samuel brought forth. And they approved. The whole nation approved him. We recognize in his sovereignty We don't always understand his providential sovereignty for us. We do know this. We can trust in his sovereignty, and yet we need to understand he desires to be holy and to follow him in obedience by his grace. We know that Samuel was a great man, a great judge. He judged all his days, and yet the people of Israel even though later on they all, when he dies, finally goes to be with the Lord, they celebrated him. They loved him, but they didn't trust him in his old age, even though he was God's man. He was set apart for this purpose. He was a prophet, priest, and judge. So as we look at this, We have to understand that whatever God does in our lives, He does so for His purposes. But we can totally and completely trust Him in that. And we can love Him for it. He reveals Himself clearly, both in the Old and the New Testament, as a holy, righteous, and sovereign God. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.